Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14 as we study the divided kingdom. Remember the kingdom is divided between Israel and Judah. And in our last study we learned that they lost a true man of God in Elisha's death. God used him in so many ways to speak truth in the land in the middle of their compromise and disobedience. And it's good to have men and women in your life. As much as you wouldn't want them at times, it's good to have men and women in your life that will speak the truth in love when we're going through the good times and the bad times. When we are making good decisions and we're making bad decisions. Some of you specifically have what is known as the spiritual gift of prophecy. And remember we learned when we were studying the gift of prophecy that the New Testament use of this gift is not the foretelling of God, but rather the forthtelling of God, where you speak forth God's word. God's word has always been, already been established. You speak forth God's word into someone's life. It's how God uses you within the body. You're known as someone who is able to speak the truth, especially when others aren't willing to do that. And without you, let me just say, if you have to get the prophecy, you don't always like it. It's similar to the gift of exhortation. You don't always like that gift, but let me tell you something. If it wasn't for you, you we would miss out on a lot that God has for us. We would miss out on a lot. We, we would be going along in our own compromising ways. Had you not come and just speak and be faithful to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life and speak the truth to us. So don't be overly discouraged because you have this gift or don't be overly discouraged because people don't like to listen to you or they don't receive it. Recall that Jesus lived a perfect life and he had a perfect ministry in every sense of that word, God in human flesh, empowered by the very Spirit of God to accomplish perfectly the will of the Father. And his reward was to be rejected, to be resisted, to be crucified after being tortured. And the last thing, the last thing you want in your life is to be surrounded by people who agree with you in your compromise, who encourage you in your sin, and who corrupt your simple relationship in Jesus Christ. The last thing you need are so-called friends that will encourage you to sin, that will encourage you to gossip, that will bring to you a juicy tidbit. Or even recently, just being reminded that the Bible teaches us that a fool vents all his emotions. And which one of us have been not been guilty of that? We, have, uh, we live in a society that like props up, I was just venting, I was just venting. So just change the word and just say, I was just sinning, I was just sinning, I was just sinning when I just burst out all my complaints to you and when I just told you all the bad things I feel about my mom or about her or him or whoever it might be. The fool does that. It's a foolish thing for us 
to sin against God and to sin against others. And so when they lost Elisha, they lost a good man. And may the Lord help us when we lose good men and good women in our lives, whether by death, which is sad and tragic, or simply because we pushed them out of our lives, or we didn't want them in our lives anymore, we didn't fan the flames of friendship or relationship. And man, may the Lord help us, because we need those men and women in our life to speak the truth to us in good and in bad. So notice now in verse 1 of chapter 14, in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now it happened, as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand, that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. But the children of the murderers he did not execute, according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor shall the children be put to death for the fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. So Amaziah now is the ninth king of Judah, the son of Joash. He was the king that became king at seven years old. He reigned well, but later in life didn't destroy the idols, killed God's prophet, and ended up being assassinated. And Amaziah, his son, too, started out well. But we'll see, if you just look at verse 17, Amaziah, the, ki- the son of Joash, the king of Judah, he lived 15 years after the death of Jeho- Jehoahash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, and the rest of the Acts of Amaziah are not written in the book of the Chronicles, the kings of Judah. When we get to Chronicles, we'll learn in chapter 20, 2 Chronicles 25 that he also was assassinated. And here's the issue. He did right within the sight of the Lord, yet not. And it's just those things in, in the Bible that, that as I'm reading them, I'm like, I don't want that to describe my life. And certainly it does, and it has in many ways, but it does, I don't have to end my life like that, where you, know, you kind of think in your own life, if they were writing the story of your life right now, you go, oh, you know, so-and-so did right, Ed did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not. And I, I just don't want to be known by the yet not. I, I want to be known as a man that did right in the sight of the Lord. And when he failed, he repented and recovered. And, and he didn't make willing knowledgeable decisions to sin against God, which is what happens here. He, he did right, but it wasn't like David. And, and what, the reason it wasn't like David is because he still let people sacrifice where they wanted to. That's what it says here in verse 4. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So it was like a mixture of idolatry, but it was also just worshiping the one true God in all sorts of different places. He allowed that to take place. Because remember, according to the law, according to God's precepts, according to his instruction, it was commanded that the people of God should bring their sacrifices to the place that God prescribed. God said where to worship. They couldn't just offer, according to the law, they couldn't just offer sacrifices anywhere they wanted to. They couldn't just make it up as they wanted to. And it was neither easy or convenient to go all the way to Jerusalem 
which was appoint, the appointed place of sacrifice, it was neither easy or convenient to worship there. And so they would set up various altars and high places. Sort of kind of because Jerusalem, you know, anyone, when you go, go to Israel, whenever you go to, to Jerusalem, from any part in Israel, you're always going up. It's the city set on a hill. And so on these high places, it was kind of like a mini fake Jerusalem. And yes, idolatry took place on the high places as well. But ultimately, it wasn't the place prescribed by God. They were worshiping God, but in their own way. Now, you would think that, that we would outgrow that by now in the 21st century. But I'm telling you, the same thing happens today. Where you have a world that is worshiping God, but you want to worship God your own way. You, you want it your own prescription. You want it to be in your own place, in your own timing. If there's ever a time, you know, if there's ever an issue with what we might call Western Christianity, what we might call you know, Christianity in the U.S., but it's not just a U.S. thing, but we live in the U.S., so, but it is all the way around. It's this whole consumerism when it comes to worshiping God. And it certainly happens here, and this is what it sounds like. There'll be folks looking for a church, shopping for a church. So if you use that phrase, we're shopping for a church. And when you're shopping for a church, you usually enter into a building or to a gathering and say this, what do you have for me? And whether you have it or not, you have a list in your mind of what you want from a church. You want this from a church. You want that from a church. You go on list and list things. I, I remember years ago moving here, being super green in the ministry, not having any experience whatsoever, overseeing a church, pastoring a church, and, and God had entrusted to me a, a very small group of people that he was teaching me faithfulness. We, we started Sunday morning services, and a brother came up after service, shake my hand. He says, you did pretty good today, pastor. And I'm only recalling, I'm not quoting him exactly, but I am recalling calling the conversation in my mind like it was yesterday. Pretty good, Pastor. And you almost passed the test. I passed the test? What are you talking about? I didn't know I was taking a test. Uh, I thought you were here. God was examining you, but you are, God's examining you. You're examining me. And he pulls out a list, and he has a list with check marks next to some of the things. And he says, you almost got them all. And I'm like, what? And, you know, I, I didn't even have an inside voice back then. I didn't even know what to say to something like this. But I got an, invoice, I got an inside voice now. And I'm like, are you serious? Now, let me do say that there are some things to find in a church. We've, we've actually done studies on what a healthy church looks like, what an unhealthy church looks like. So I'm not opposed to, I, I get that. You obviously don't want to just walk in the building that's in your neighborhood and they're a cult or obviously you want to find the right place. But, but you, you also don't want to be a consumer. The Bible doesn't say to go into all the world and make consumers. The Bible says that we're to make disciples, followers of Jesus. And it's not what I can, it's not what the church can do for me, according to the Bible. It's what, what am I to do in the church? I am the church. So in a very real way, if you ask the question, what can the church do to me, do for me, then ask yourself, you're the church. What exactly can, do, can you do for yourself? You and I are the church. And so here, this kind of disobedience was happening in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there were people that wanted to worship God the way they wanted to worship God. They wanted convenience and ease. And, and to back off just a little bit, this is a sign of leadership weakness, a lack of leadership. It's not just spiritual disobedience, but it's a lack of leadership that the kings would allow these traditions to remain. 
allowing things that are wrong and not dealing with them. This habit of establishing places, places of worship, high places, they actually began back in the time of Judges. And you'll recall, those of you that have read and studied Judges, that it was a time where there was no king in Israel. And so what? People did that which was right in their own eyes. When there's no leadership, it's easy to do what's right in your own eyes. And how careful we need to be. Samaria in the north, Jerusalem in the south, these compromises were one of the many signs of the deep spiritual weakness in a king. We can't forget as we're studying through that the king represented the leadership of God. You had the kings and you had the priests. And remember, if the king wasn't right and the priest wasn't right, God would raise up a man known as a prophet who would speak truth to the way, wayward king and the wayward priest and the people that would follow them and choose their own way. And here he is, Amaziah, does good yet. You might want to just mark those words, maybe pray over it, yet not like, yet not like. You know, David is only a type and a picture of the perfect one to come, Jesus Christ. And you could, you know, write it for yourself. Um, and Ed did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his Savior, Jesus would be a way to look at it today. It's like, oh Lord, empower me to make the right decisions and to be obedient. I want to draw something out for you before we move on to the next section in verses 5 and 6 because you read, by, read, through, read through it very quickly, you might miss it. So notice it happened, verse 5, as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. But the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, and I quote, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor shall the children be put to death for the fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. You can jot it down there in the notes or in your margin. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. He repays those that killed his dad, but he spares their family. He spares their family. He was obedient, and he was obedient to a specific scripture in his life. It's Deuteronomy 24, 16. It's quoted for us here. For you Bible students, you may have heard or read or maybe watched a video on YouTube of so-called scholars attacking the book of Deuteronomy as being much written much later in the life of the nation. And one of the attacks on Deuteronomy is that Moses did not write it. However, it's quoted here and obeyed in 2 Kings, validating its truthfulness. And so as you surf the web and you have friends at work talking to you about stuff, don't be easily stumbled by their, their well-worn out attacks on the Bible. Because they come, don't they? You're talking to somebody about the things of God and they go, oh, you don't believe in that. You don't believe in that. You don't believe in that. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I actually do believe in that. Oh, you're just believing in fairy tales and myths. And of course, Peter already taught us that, that there would be those that come and criticize the teaching of God as fables and fairy tales. And, and so I want to, just for the sake of review, I want, to, I want you to consider that when you're talking to people about 
as their attacks on the Bible and their attacks on your faith and how they want to belittle you, make fun of you, attack you. Uh, there's actually a logical phrase for personal attacks. It's called ad hominem. And basically what that means is when you're having a debate with someone and a disagreement and they are unable to make their point, they will attack you personally. And so what they say, well, you know, the Bible says this. And you go, no, the facts are this. The Bible says this. And no, no, it's actually this. And no, the facts are this. And they say, well, well, your mama's ugly. Whoa, bro. What's up? Don't be talking about my mom and you jump across the table. Nobody talks about my mom. And they're not even talking about the Bible anymore. A personal attack, a personal attack. Now, of course, that's a schoolyard attack. And that was very common on the, maybe you didn't experience it, but it was a very common one that I used constantly to get somebody off their game. Praise God, I'm born again. We don't do that anymore. We love each other in the agape love of Jesus Christ. But you know, a lot of people, they grew up, but they never left high school. And they still use the same worn out attacks. For Bible people, they make fun of you. Oh, you don't believe in Jonah and a big whale. And you go, no, actually, I don't believe in Jonah and a big whale. The Bible actually says big fish. Look it up. Oh, you don't believe in Adam and Eve. Actually, I do believe in Adam and Eve. You don't believe in, and they start going through a list. They make, kind of make you feel dumb, make you want to feel dumb. Well, let, let's just put this, into, put this in perspective because the argument actually isn't with you at all. You believe what you believe, and you believe it based upon the authority of Scripture. So here, you know, they attack Deuteronomy. Oh, Moses didn't write it. Man, it's being quoted in 2 Kings. That, that is, it's being obeyed by the time we get to 2 Kings, just a few generations after David and Solomon, and, and Moses is way back behind 2 Kings. It's just one more, well, the Bible is pretty clear. I don't, you, you're making these things up, these so-called scholars. So the argument actually isn't with you, and it's actually not even with the Bible. The essence of that argument, that attack on you for believing what you believe, is an attack upon Jesus Christ himself. Because just consider this. Number one, Jesus believed in Jonah, Nineveh, and the Queen of Sheba, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus believed in Adam, Eve, and a literal six-day or seven-day creation with the day of rest, Matthew chapter 19. He believed in marriage between one man and one woman by that same verse. A lot of times people say, well, Jesus never spoke on marriage, and he never spoke on homosexuality and defining marriage. Yes, he did. He defined marriage as Adam and Eve. One man, one woman. He defined what man brought, what, what God brings together, let not man separate, male and female. Yes, he did speak on such things. And number three, he believed in Cain and Abel, Matthew chapter 23. He believed in Daniel and, a, and verified Daniel as a prophet, Matthew chapter 24. He believed in the prophet Elijah, the same Elijah that we've been studying and all the miraculous, crazy things that God used him to do in order to validate and verify his ministry. Jesus believed in Elijah, according to Luke chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus believed and taught in a literal worldwide flood. He believed in Noah. He believed in Noah building the ark, according to Luke chapter 17, verse 27. Jesus believed in a literal Sodom and Gomorrah and affirmed Lot and the sins of Lot, according to Luke chapter 17. Jesus believed in Moses, Luke chapter 20, and he actually validates, Jesus does. I don't know if you remember this, but according to Luke chapter 24, Jesus actually validates 
the veracity and truthfulness of the entire Old Testament. Remember, he was walking down uh, the road to Emmaus with those two guys kicking cans, and what does he do? He starts all the way in the beginning of Genesis and walks them through revealing who? Himself, all throughout the Old Testament. It's beautiful. So the argument's not, so you don't have to get all personal. And, and I mean, it's hard when they start attacking you, but now you know they're actually not attacking you. It's, they're, they're really undermining, well, well, do you think Jesus was an idiot? You know, you're an idiot for leaving that. Well, do you believe Jesus was an idiot? Most people, now, you know, people are getting cruder now, but most people aren't willing to call Jesus an idiot. Most people aren't willing to call him a lunatic. Most people, I mean, maybe today there's a little bit of change in that, but most people uh, are willing to consider, but wait a minute, Jesus taught this, Jesus taught this, Jesus taught this, over and over and over again. I mean, by the time you get this, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. I mean, if 16 isn't enough, I'm sure we can find more. But 16 sounds like that should make the point. And you don't have to sense, well, you know, maybe it is. Maybe it's not true. And maybe modern day science has now undermined what Jesus believed. Now, maybe if Jesus was here today, he'd change his mind. He wouldn't change his mind because Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Science will not, human discovered science will not change the mind of Jesus Christ. Oh, you know, they can't. It's just not possible for a fish to swallow a man and have him live in there. It's just not possible. It's, it would require a miracle. Exactly. And the Bible says that that, the Bible says with Jonah, and think about this, God loved Jonah so much, and he loved the people of Nineveh, the vicious, nasty, wicked people of Nineveh so much that you read very carefully in Jonah that God prepared a fish for Jonah. And I wonder for those of you running away today, what fish God has prepared for you in the Aurora Reservoir as you're out paddleboarding, and you're like, oh, what happened to him? Oh, you know, just God prepared a fish for him. And we'll all be waiting for you to be vomited up. But it's different containers these days, isn't it, that God allows into our lives to get our attention so that we might do what he's called us to do and not run away from his will, but run in his will in the course of his commandments. We just had to see that. I wanted you to see Deuteronomy. I know we spent some time there, but you had to see it. Verse 7. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by war and called its name Jokthiel to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash and the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us face one another in battle. Now, much of this we're going to learn more deeply when we get to Chronicles. As we study through First and Second Chronicles, it's going to be a lot of repetition and going to expand a few things uh, that we didn't read through our study in Kings. So I didn't, some teachers try to put them all together, but we're just going to go through verse by verse, the whole, all the books, and we'll tie them all together um, as we go through Chronicles. So we'll learn more about this. But Edom, about 100 years prior to this, rebelled against Judah, so he decided to go down and take control. So the king decided to go down and take control of Edom again. And it was a good decision, except that he went about it the wrong way. The, the way that he went is he took a census and he was encouraged to find 300,000 men. But instead of trusting God, you learn all this in Second Chronicles, instead of trusting God and his men, he hired 100,000 mercenaries from Israel to increase his power. And on his way down, God sent a prophet to warn him. 
And I'll read it to you in 2 Chronicles 25. A man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the children of Ephraim. But if you go, be gone. Be strong in battle. Even so, God will make you fall before the enemy, for God has power to help and to overthrow. So he basically says what he says to us often. Hey, don't do it. Don't do it. But if you do, you're going to fail. Don't do it. <laughs> but if you try to, if you, I hope you're strong. He's not really encouraging him. He's like, if you decide to obey, I hope you're strong. But I'll tell you what, God has the power to give victory and he has the power to overthrow. The battle belongs to the Lord. So don't do it. So Amaziah told the mercenaries to go back home. And he went on to battle Edom and was successful and victorious. But, and there's always a but in disobedience. While he was gone, the mercenaries from Israel destroyed the cities of Judah and killed 3,000 people. And so Amaziah challenges Jehoash to a battle. And that's what you see in these couple verses. It's elaborated over in Chronicles. And here's the thing. One of the recurring sins in the life of Israel is their sin of forming alliances with ungodly instead of exercising faith and trusting God. What we would refer to that today is what the New Testament calls don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And you can jot it down. We've studied it in depth, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is one of their sins. You know, Solomon married heathen wives. Ahab married Jezebel. Jehoshaphat will ally with Ahab. And on and on the list goes. And at this time, it cost him 3,000 lives. And it's an admonition from the Bible to not yoke together with unbelievers. You can study that in the studies that we have online uh, because we've gone far in depth in that. Verse 9. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. So you have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. <clears throat> Glory in your success, and stay at home. For why should you meddle in trouble so that you may fall, you and Judah, with you? So he sends this little parable about the thistle and the cedar. And he's just basically saying, look, why don't you just be content with your victory? Don't be all prideful. Just be content with your victory and leave us alone. And that's good advice. It's always, this, the advice that he gives is good. And you, know, you never know where the truth's going to come from. You never know where it's going to come from. You've you, you got to be tuning your ears to the Holy Spirit of God because it could be come from an enemy king. You don't know where the truth's going to come from, but notice this advice was good when he said, uh, glory in your success, stay at home. Why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall? Why get involved in other people's problems? Why get involved? Here's what the Proverbs say in Proverbs 26, verse 17. Like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel, not his own. That's the NIV. Just don't grab the pit bull's ears. It won't end very well. Just don't do it. And yet we find ourselves, and we find this situation happening so many times, meddling in other people's affairs. And it's just a warning, even from the book of Kings. Verse 11. And Amaziah would not heed. Therefore Jehoash, the king of Israel, went out. And he and Amaziah, the king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, 
which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Then Jehoash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver and all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasury of the king's house and the hostages and returned to Samaria. Aren't those famous last words, refuse to listen? How much trouble, how much pain, how much difficulty and consequences have come into our lives because we've refused to listen to wise counsel and have been puffed up with overconfidence and pride. And it happened with Joshua. It, it happened in Jericho after he has this great victory. You know, he's also overconfident. No mention of prayer. They go to Ai and they're soundly defeated. And sin was in the camp. Over and over again, men and women of God have been, get, been undermined by overconfidence. I have certainly experienced this in my personal life where pride has overtaken my mind and I'm overconfident perhaps over a victory or over some tremendous open doors that God has allowed me to be a part of and forget, so easily forget that everything that I am and everything that I am privileged to be a part of is all from the Lord. It's not even 1% Ed Taylor, not even 2%. It's all God. And it's the truth for you. Like you guys are sitting there, man, we have a messed up pastor. Oh, okay, maybe you do. But I wonder how messed up you are. If I said, hey, come on, anybody been overconfident? And the lights are going to swing in here because of the air from your hands. So everybody's up. Yeah, I was overconfident and I got this and, and I, was, I was humbled. And, and isn't it true that God, he values humility. That God is actually attracted to weakness. Man is not attracted to weakness. Man is attracted to strength and notoriety. Man is impressed by numbers. Man is impressed by things that doesn't, don't impress God. You know, when I'm speaking to pastors, whether they're speaking to one person or they're speaking to a thousand people, God is not impressed by that. Men might be impressed by that. God's not impressed by that. God's impressed by weakness. Whereby maybe a brother might stand up in front of a thousand people and be very nervous. Oh, I'm so nervous. There's so many new people. But when there's one person, oh, slam dunker. Slam dunk. Well, why aren't you nervous in front of one person? It's not the people that are in front of you. It's the word of God that's a fire in your bones. It's the God of holiness and righteousness that you're standing before when you teach. You should be nervous just standing in the pulpit. Not a weird nervousness, but the holiness of God and the fear of God that when you're handling the word of God, you don't want to mess it up. There's 100,000 people in front of you or one. It doesn't matter. If nobody shows up and it's a zero turnout, you still stand there with great fear and preach the Bible study to yourself. You prepared it. Teach it to yourself. See, God's using all these things in our lives. You get a promotion at work and you're just like, oh, I feel so much, I feel so much better. I feel so much better because I've been rewarded for my service. But, but, but we have to remember there was a time when you were looking for work and God was humbling you. And he was bringing you to a place of surrender. And you were crying out for work. You were crying out for God to meet you. And, and no matter where we're at in life, God is, he's, he values humility and he's attracted to weakness. 
And may we find ourselves in places where we're attractive to the Lord. So don't let that be, you know, your testimony uh, that, that you refuse to listen. Listen to sound counsel. Listen to godly counsel. Listen to godly advice. Listen to godly warnings. Heed them. Notice in verse 15. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, in which he did his might and how he fought with Amaziah, the king of Judah, aren't they written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel and Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. This is, by the way, if you're taking notes, you can just nod. This is Jeroboam the second, uh, not the Jeroboam we met earlier. Amaziah, verse 17, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash and the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. And the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles and the kings of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, and they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Ahazariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. And he built Eloth and restored it to, the, to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel. And he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was in Gath-Hefer. Verse 26. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, how he recaptured Israel from Damascus and Hamath, and that he had belonged to Judah, are they all not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel, then Zechariah his son reigned in his place. So the attention at the end here has been brought back to the north, to Jeroboam II, who also does evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet even in his evil, nothing was wasted by God. During his reign, God raised up four powerful prophets during this time. Jonah, Hosea, Joel, and Micah. But he didn't listen to them. And so even though it's a difficult leadership, God is still raising up men to speak the truth. And you'll notice in verse 27, really in verse 26, that the grace of God is saturating the entirety of Scripture. That even though Israel has sinned, even though they've rebelled, even though they've followed some of the kings, even though they have a wicked king, that the Lord sees the affliction was very bitter. Either if they were bond or free, there was no helper. And the Lord didn't say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Like, the grace of God is everywhere. It's all throughout the scriptures. We should have one of, those, one of those markers or one of those stamps where it's watermarked on every page, the grace of God, 
the grace of God. Like he notices when you're going through difficulty. He notices when your home is upside down. He notices when your marriage is struggling. He notices the difficulties in your singleness. He notices when your dad goes off the rails. He notices when your mom is sad. He notices. It says the Lord saw their affliction. He saw that they were very bitter. It was very tasteless. It was the kind of pain that you spit out. It was, it was hard and it was difficult. And nothing that you and I go through is hidden from God. He sees you. He also sees that you have no help. Or at least in your case, perhaps you, you feel like you have no help. You feel like it's a helpless situation. When you feel helpless, then it immediately goes to hopeless. And it's mixed, intertwined with discouragement and depression and despair and you just get in this vicious cycle and I want you to know that the Lord sees whether you need that today or you need that next week or you need that in a month from now should the Lord not return the Lord sees and he knows it's very bitter for you and he knows that there's no helper that the things that you've leaned upon the attempts that you've tried. He, he sees and he knows. And like with the children of Israel, he didn't say he would blot your name out. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are secure in the Father's arms. Nobody can snatch you from his hands. You have an even greater than the high priest that would go in once a year and offer the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant within the temple that cover to the sins of the children of Israel for another year of the Old Covenant. You have a great high priest who offered himself as the very mercy seat and shed his own blood, not to cover sins, not to kafar, but to remove your sins. You, your sins have been removed. They, they have been you haven't been blotted out. Your sins have been blotted out. Isn't that great? To me, it's wonderful. You haven't been blotted out. God knows and he sees. And, and he's going to show up in your life at just the right time that will accomplish his will and his purposes and his desire. And even though we may not see the anguish in your life, we may not live with it. We may not experience it with you. You mark these words, for the Lord sees your affliction. He sees it. He knows it. Isn't that what we learned? How, I love how the Bible just intertwines together with no plan or purpose on our part. But we just finished studying in our weekend services. Go ahead and turn over there, because we didn't turn anywhere today, uh, which is the case sometimes. But notice Hebrews chapter 4. We just looked at this. We just allowed it to saturate our hearts. Notice. And we'll get to the next section this coming weekend. So it's just so glorious. We just looked at Hebrews 4 verse 13 that there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes to whom we must give account. And we're always emphasizing, you know, the emphasis of you can't hide sin and nothing's hidden. And that's true. But I want you to know it's also positive. Nothing's hidden from God in your life. There isn't anything hidden. 
Whether you choose to try to hide things like Achan or just the pain in your life, just the agony in your life, just the grief in your life, just the affliction, even the bitter taste in your life and the worry and the fear and nothing is hidden from God. Not only that, seeing then, verse 14, that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession because we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are but without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? That we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And isn't that when you rush the gates of heaven, your time of need? It is for me. I come to God uh, in prayer very often. I did on the way in, you know, coming up Hampton today as I was driving in. Um, but it wasn't in a desperation. I wasn't super desperate. But when you know it, by the end of the day, God allowed some circumstances in my life to make me a little more desperate. This morning coming in, it was, uh, you know, lollipops and jelly bellies. By the time you get to tonight, it was... Brussels sprouts and dirt. <laughs> Why? Because God is jealous over you and me. And he wants us to draw near to him. And there's something valuable in weakness and desperation where we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. There's a wonderful thing about God. Let me read to you. Let me quote to you Pastor Chuck Smith. The wonderful thing about God is he's slow to forsake his people. He saw them in their pitiful condition, even though the pitiful condition was brought about by their own sin, their own rebellion against God. Yet, God seeing them in this pitiful state, Pastor Chuck likes the word pitiful, no one would stand with them. They had no allies. Everybody was against them, which touched the heart of God. And because everybody was against them, God was for them, and God helped them, and he reached out his hand to help them. Oh, how patient, how loving, how kind is the God that we serve. How quick to forgive, how slow to react in judgment. And so the Lord saw their affliction. It was bitter. They had been shut up. Their enemies, they were surrounded by enemies. There was no one left to help them. God felt sorry for them. He didn't say that he wouldn't blot out their name from Israel into heaven, but he saved them from the hand of Jeroboam, from the hand of this king. I was like, yes. God was for them. God helped them. He reached out his hand to help them. He saw their state. Now in the, just the few minutes that we have left, I want to quickly ask and answer the question, but Ed, why the evil king? Why does God allow evil leaders? Why does God allow people that certainly don't love him, don't serve him, do evil in his sight. Why would God use an evil man like this? And, and I have to say, we have a big problem with this in our own lives. When someone that's put in authority over us isn't kind, isn't loving, isn't helpful, they're wicked. And as believers, we, we tend to think that we shouldn't have wicked leaders over us. And yet, we do at times. We tend to think that God can only use good people and godly people and believers. And he does. But by his grace, 
God is not limited by our behavior. God's not limited to accomplish his will by our behavior. So that in, even if we fail or somebody has the wickedness of behavior, just an unbeliever, that God can use an unbeliever in our lives, he's not limited by their wicked behavior. He'll use whoever he wants, whenever he wants, to accomplish his will. The Bible teaches us. Let me show you and remind you. Would you turn over to Psalm 73? Psalm 73. We might cry out, it's not fair, Lord. They did this and they did that. And it doesn't, they don't seem to pay for anything. They seem to be getting away with everything. And you still use them. And they still seem to be successful. And they're spouting off this. And they're doing this. And they're doing, and, and they still seem to be, and, and I'll tell you, it's not an approval of someone's sinful behavior. God does not approve of someone's sinful behavior. But I'll know this. God loves his people. And he will take care of his people even if and when wickedness abounds. You know, a pastor might uh, be doing really nasty stuff, you know, really involved in deep, horrible sin that would disqualify them. And they come up to the pulpit, teach the Bible, hundreds of people get saved, the church grows, thousands of people come, they have a worldwide ministry, all kinds of things, and, and then it comes out five, ten years later that he was not only was he in sin now, but he was in sin for all those ten years, and you go, what happened? What, what, what's going on? And I'll tell you, the, the pastor tends to think that when he gets up and he's living in sin, and the people are getting saved, and the, the church is manifesting life, there's an easy uh, place to get into self-deception. They're like, well, God must be proving of me. Uh, I must be getting away with it. Oh, I'll get up next time. And, and, and yet the Bible says that don't be deceived. Your sin will find you out. Like it's not God that will find you out because God already knows. It's your sin that will catch up to you. It will catch up to all of us if we choose to live that way. And so the validation of God blessing his people and the validation of God ministering to his people, the validation of you coming out and sacrificing your time to sing to God, to, to pray together with other believers, to give of your tithes and offerings, to have communion, to, to be built up by the God's word, to, be, uh, to, to, to receive Bible study. And, and God will use any vessel to bless you, to meet you here. But it doesn't validate their wickedness. Like we see the same feeling. Notice in Psalm 73, in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as pure in heart. Good start. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped. Why, psalmist? Verse 3. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw, check this out, if you don't have it marked already, what do you do when you see the prosperity of the wicked? Because that's what we see a picture of. There was great victory under the leadership of a wicked man. And then he starts to think, well, they don't hurt in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble like other men. They're not plagued like other men. Let me just say, if you were able to pull the curtain back on those that rebel against God and those that are evil and wicked, you would find in the darkness of their heart loneliness, fear, anxiety. You would find that money doesn't solve all their problems. You would find that with all their possessions, all they do is worry about them and have ulcers. You would find they have no peace in all the different religions that they've sought after. We don't get to see the heart of man, but God does. 
And so notice in verse 16 it says, when I thought how to understand all of this, because the whole psalm's like that, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And then he gets the reality. You've set them in, you've set them in slippery places, cast them down to destruction. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You'll guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And is there none upon the earth that I desire besides you? My flesh, my heart, they fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's such a beautiful truth. When I'm discouraged or confused by what I see and what I hear, I need to find myself in a place of worship. I need to come back to church. You guys listening on the radio and been away from your church for a while, whether it's here at Calvary or whatever church you're at, you're listening on the radio right now at a later date or you're watching online and you're just so confused and you're so discouraged, it's time to get back into the house of God. And I know you started by listening to a Bible study, but it's not the same. You need to be around the saints. You need to open up and be vulnerable again. You know you're going to get hurt again. You're getting hurt right now. You know, I don't want to go to church because I don't want to get hurt again. But staying away from other believers, you're hurting yourself. And so it's better just to step into people's lives, start serving them, start visiting the hospital again, start visiting those, start giving to the poor, start giving of your life again, start letting God use you. Don't be stuck in your thoughts and don't be stuck in your worries. Don't be like, oh, look at the wicked. No, 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 it's not about the wicked. It's actually not about the wicked at all. It's about me and you. Whom do I have in heaven but you, God? Who is it? Nobody. There's none beside you on the earth that I desire besides you. Even though my flesh and my heart fail, verse 26. Listen, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And my perspective is always changed when I'm in the house of God and I choose to worship him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, what do we do about the wicked, those in leadership, upset about them? Come into the house of God and obey 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And let me just say, you can't keep a hard heart for someone when you pray for them. Because the answer to your prayer is God softening your heart and just bringing back that sweet, beautiful fellowship that you've lost through bitterness and anguish, through the difficulties that you face. And so, Father, as we close up today, we want to be careful to uh, receive from you Good, good and godly advice and warnings. And, and uh, you know, we've covered a lot of territory in this chapter, but as we covered it, God, I know your Holy Spirit's gonna make it come alive in our lives and our hearts. And so we just ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that those listening in would come back, step in, give their lives back to you, Lord, come back into the sanctuary of God, then we'll gain the understanding that we're looking for. You know, you'll give some kind of understanding Uh, We don't live on understanding, but you'll give some. We'll understand that we have nobody on earth but you. 
We'll understand that you're our portion and our lot. We'll understand that your name is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe. We'll understand, God, that you're our strength. You're our supply. You're our sufficiency. you You are the most important person in our lives. And may we come back to love you, God, with all our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbors, ourselves. And today, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, today is that day. I want to invite you to repent of your sins, the Bible says, to turn away from your sinful past and to ask God to forgive you of all of your sins. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to forgive you of your sins. He didn't come to give you a better life. He didn't come to give you more money. He didn't come to give you all the desires of your heart. He came to give you that which you never even wanted up until this point, and that's the forgiveness of your sins. He came to give you an eternal security in Him. He came to give you victory, to heal your broken heart. He came to preach deliverance to the captives. He came to draw you into a relationship with Him. And this, on behalf of God, I invite you. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart who you are in the depth of your person, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I just want to ask if there's anyone here today that would say, Ed, that's me. I need to get my life right with God. Would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you today. Just stand right where you're at and acknowledge. As a matter of fact, tonight I want you to stand and, and uh, you know, I, I want you to stand and actually come up right now. Like, that's, I want to give you, I, I just feel a sense that walking to this stage, which can be like an altar, is actually what you really need to do. Like, you really need to make a public, conscious effort to, to walk and let it be the first steps of what it means to follow Jesus in your mind. So if that's you, uh, and you know who you are, because God's been speaking to you, and you know, like, God just resonated right here. God bless you, bro. Right here. That God's doing a work. God bless you, man. What's your name? Caleb. Caleb? Yes, sir. That's a good biblical name. Come on up over here. Anyone else? Anyone else? Just come right now. Like the, the Lord just speaking to your heart. Like it just resonates that today's the day. Yes, we welcome you. Yes. Anyone else? So you guys, this is like a, a holy moment in their lives. And I'm just going to lead them in a prayer. If you guys want to lay hands on them like this from where you're at, and let's just pray for them. If you guys want to repeat after me, you could say, Dear God, I admit that I've sinned against you, and I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, die for me, and I believe he rose again from the dead. And I dedicate to following him from this day forward. And I ask you, God, to help me to turn away from my sinful past. In Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.